two, if you will. We'll get started here and uh, we'll uh, carry on here. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, we'll just start reading verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And, and again, we, we got into the first three verses. We're going to pick up verse 3 and 4 here this morning. Um, the Corinthians are gravitating towards human wisdom, and they're gravitating toward a false measure of the truth. And what Paul has been doing, really since chapter 1, verse 18, is he's been corrective doctrine, correcting them, trying to get them to understand where truth really lies. And as Paul is doing that, he's now in chapter 2 going to give a, a contrast. Here's, here's the world's methodology of obtaining the truth, and then here is... God's way of God's methodology of obtaining the truth, and there's this there's this back and forth. There's a contrast here, and again, what the Corinthians are doing is they're going after that excellency of speech. Verse one, the mastery of oration, the mastery of speech. They're they're the they're 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 going. I was I googled some stuff about the Greek. Uh, culture and this issue of speech and everything, and there's a word that I can't remember what the word is now. But anyway, and it said the best illustration is lawyer, <laughs> and, and it's this issue of making something that is false appear to be true, and that's that oration. They're taking a falsehood. In today's parlay, we would say they're making they're taking fake news and making it real news. And they're doing it, and really, if you think about what our media has done over the last couple years, that's what, that's what they're doing here. They're, just here, we're talking about the truth, and spirit, not, not stuff that doesn't matter in the end anyway, okay? But what Paul's doing here is he's, he's going to start contrasting, and he's going to do it in such a manner that demonstrates, here's how God is working, if you go back into chapter 1, if you just look at verse 18, for the preaching of the, of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Verse 27, but God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the weak, the things which are mighty, and that it. I point those out because Paul's been laying in. You guys are looking over here, and God's working over here. What the world calls foolish and weak, God's like that's exactly where I'm at and where I'm working. And literally, what's going to happen now in 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 the rest of chapter two. And he starts it here in verse 3 and 4, is that Paul is going to, he's going to describe the methodology of how God the Holy Spirit works. 
And he's going to prove the point to the Corinthians and then as well as to you and I because this isn't an isolated issue to the Corinthians back in, you know, 60 A.D. or whatever. It, this happens today where people, it's an error to assume that truth is found in the power, the presence of an individual speaker, okay? In the, in the presence and in the power of that outward appearance, that, that speech, the mastery of oration. Again, that's why they liked Apollos. He was eloquent in the scriptures. Now, he's not talking about having poor grammar or poor language. He's talking about using speech to convince something that's not true that it is true. And again, that's what Paul's doing here. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We got here last time, and I want to pick up on what, what he's doing here. And in verse 4, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Again, the enticing words, that excellency of speech, the Romans 16, 17, and 18, good words and fair speeches designed to persuade. Paul's like, you're not going to find God. You're not going to find truth. You're not going to do any of that over in all of that human wisdom. That's why verse 9, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You're not going on man's own, man's best day, Solomon says, there is just vanity. It's just empty. And you're not going to find and you're not going to accomplish anything. So verse 4, where he talks here in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing word of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that is now going to be the answer to the end of verse 3, where I came in fear and weakness and fear and in much trembling. And what's going to happen here is Paul, he's going to now begin to illustrate out something for, he's going to use himself, which is what he always does. It's very fascinating. In all of Paul's epistles, the introduction, he tells you what we're going to be talking about and dealing with and how we're going to deal with it. And then the, the content of the book, he deals with it doctrinally, whatever the issues are. And then at the end, he uses a real-life personal illustration. And the majority of the time, it's himself because he's our pattern. So he's, that's why, by the way, verse 1, and I, when I, verse 2, I determined. Verse 3, I was with you. Verse 4, my, strength, my speech. He's talking about himself, not in a braggatorial manner. He, he never does that. He always talks about himself and it's who he is in Christ and in the power of his office as an apostle. He never sits there and says, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. Actually, he says, I'm scum. I'm off scouring. I'm, no, I'm, I'm the least of all this. You know, I was the chief of sinners. I, I'm nobody. But in who I am in Christ, I'm, I have this position. So Paul now is going to, in verse 3, he brings up fear, weakness, fear, and trembling. And then in verse 4, he answers it that it's the, in the dem demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, we have to think about verse 3 and verse 4 as Paul, again, he's building in the corrective doctrine He's, he's literally taking the Corinthians and shaking them. 
to wake them up because they're not valuing, they're not thinking, they're not responding positively. So in verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That is a great thing to come to understand that Paul was not immune to opposition. That Paul was not immune to sarcasm, to trouble, to tribulation, to persecution. He was never immune to it. It always hurt him. It always hit him. It always impacted him. He's not immune to the response of the Corinthians here because later in 1 Corinthians and all of 2 Corinthians, they question his apostleship. They question the validity of the authority that he carried as the apostle. They, we'll see it, we'll get over there in 2 Corinthians. He, he's contemptible. His speech is contemptible. He's rude, rudimentary, not crude and rude. He's rude. He's simple. Now, we looked last time, Paul could have easily held his own in the excellency of speech department. That's why in verse 2, for I determined not to, I determined to come with you in simple, simplicity of speech because it's not about me, it's about the demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of the Holy Spirit, the end of verse 4. It's not about me doing, it's about Him Get, it, get out of your head about you and think about that over there. You see, he, he trembled. He had fear. He had weakness by the rejections, by the opposition. Yet what did he do? He carried on. He continued. He never quit. Even in the moments of, I want to quit, which 2 Corinthians is full of, he doesn't quit. He carried. He's determined, verse uh, Two, for I determined not to know anything, verse 4, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. Of I determined to come to you with simplistic language. Simple language was his methodology. The Corinthians were gravitating to the orators, the orators, the speech givers, and they're using big words, and they're using big things. And he's like, no, I didn't come that way. I came because... When, when you got the big words, you're demanding the big pay. But what happens when the people say enough of you, we don't want you? Then these guys do what? They pack their bags and go to the next town. They don't care for you the way I'm caring for you. He's using simple language. And he's like, the methodology of God for dealing with the opposition, for dealing with the attack here, is simplistic language, simple, not big. Why? Because my speech and my preaching, it was not with the enticing words, but my speech and my preaching is in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. See, his, his orate, Paul's dealing with the Corinthians was never about him. That's why he determined not to do that's why last time we went and looked at there in Acts 17 and 18 when he's dealing with the Epicureans and the Stoics and he's quoting the Greek poets to them. He could have easily handled his own, but he didn't choose to do that because when you're dealing in that realm of thought, you become the issue. And with the believers, he's not the, the truth is the issue. The corrective doctrine is the issue. So when he says in verse 3, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, he does feel 
the opposite, the rejection. He, 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 was, he wept. He trembled. Remember, fears within, fightings without, fears within. You see, he was never immune to the negativity. And sometimes we get this idea that we are to be immune to it, and that's a wrong idea. It's, that's a bad thought, by the way. He, he, he did feel every turn, every little thing. He, but yet, what did he do? He overcame it, see? He didn't let it beat him down. He's, he didn't enjoy the negative reaction to the truth, but yet he, didn't, he, he did overcome it. And that's really, the question is, how did he do that? Because that's what we struggle with. Well, how did he do it? In demonstration of the Spirit and none of power. Now, the Spirit here, that's not the hooky-hooky acts to feel it run down your spine nonsense of the charismatic stuff. Say, how's the Spirit working? In this chapter, we're going to find out he's working through the Word of God as he strengthens the inner man with the Word. So what's going to happen here is Paul's going to come in and he's like, hey, look, guys, there's some... There's some stuff going on in my inner man, and by the way, in your inner man as well, that gives me the capability, the ability to faithfully do what I need to do and to carry on in spite of the weakness, fear, and trembling, in spite of what the circumstances of the moment are. There's some things going on inside of me, inside of you, Corinthians, inside of you today. That, it, that, that enables you to move and to keep, Mesa High's uh, saying is carry on. That's what the guy said back in the old days and in the football field. He was broke his leg and he raised, carry on, you know, and all that. Okay, well, well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's like, hey, let's carry on here. But see, if you're over here getting your truth from the world and from the philosophers and the theologians and the scholars of the day, you have nothing inside of you that's going to help you carry on and keep doing. Actually, rather, what happens is when you have weakness, fear, and trembling, what do they do? They sell you another book of no help. And Paul comes and he's like, look, guys, you can, you can make this because it's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You always have to remember, I heard this, I wrote it down. Courage is never the absence of fear and trembling. Courage is doing what's right in spite of the fear and trembling. And that's, that's the case. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul is not saying that God flips a switch and now we are free from fear and trembling and weakness. No, he was still impacted by it. And he's, there is a power, an ability to press on and to keep preaching the truth, to keep following the truth in spite of those fleshly emotions of weakness, fear, and trembling. And what verse 4 is going to do is answer how. How do I carry on? I come to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. How do I carry on? Verse 4. Well, my speech, my preaching isn't enticing words. It's what? It's in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So instead of being over here on this side of the 
methodology category where we're using human wisdom, human effort, human idea, human thought. I'm over here using God's word. So he's going to, he's, Paul, he, the, Paul's preaching is going to demonstrate something about the working of the Holy Spirit and the power that comes from that working. And that results in the power. So there's, there's going to be a demonstration here of something about the working of the Spirit that then results in the power that equips his inner man, that grips his inner man, that allows him to rise above the weakness, fear, and trembling of the moment that has gripped his flesh, that has got him down in 2 Corinthians where he can't find Titus, and he is done. Could you imagine? He has a door open to go preach, and he, he doesn't even go there. I know, well, he went down there and then left. No, the verses say he never went there. He went after looking for Titus. He caught the next camel train to tit- looking for Titus, found Titus, got a good report. Then he went back on, you know, so if the apostle can do that, but do it how? Successfully. Then so can you and I. By the way, between, just look over there at 2 Corinthians 2, just real quick. 2 Corinthians 2, if you look there at verse 12 and 13, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Okay? So he leaves. Where's he going? He's on the train to Macedonia. Now, hold on to two and come over to chapter seven. Because chapter seven, verse five, picks up where 2.13 leaves us. Where does 2.13 leave us? On the train to Macedonia. 7.5, for when we were come into Macedonia, so what did we do? We got to Macedonia. Our flesh, and that's the key thing here, these are the emotions of the flesh, had no rest, but were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So what's, we would say that Paul's on a, he's got a little anxiety, he's got a little depression, and, and modern-day medicine, pop a pill, do this, do that. I don't think they had them back there. Maybe they opiate. I don't know. doesn't matter. It's not here. Because look at the next verse. What happened? Notice what happened. Nevertheless, God. That's the but God. Had comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he, w- he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me so that I rejoice the more. What got Paul out of the stupor? Was Titus showing up, but also Titus showing up with a good report of the Corinthian believer, the church there at Corinth, concerned about Paul. We heard he was here and he bugged out. Is he, you know, okay? But my point is, is the comfort didn't come, the comfort came by another brother, another believer coming in. But he didn't come in with, oh, you need to feel good, take two aspirin. He didn't come in with all the blah, 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 blah. He came in with the doctrine. He came in with what he was doing. Here's the report, Paul. Now, go back to chapter 2 and verse 14. 
because from 2.14 to 7.3, Paul tells you how to get out of the funk of 2.13 that results in the, in the situation in chapter 7. So from 2.14 to chapter 7, you get this great insight into what got Paul out of the mindset of fightings without and fears within and all that. Now, Titus showing up, because that was the concern, because Titus held the, the bank, he had the money for the, the, uh, the giving, okay? And Titus showed. 2.14, now, now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in, what? Christ. And maketh manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Now, we're going to come back to that, but what, what, what got Paul out of the funk? Who I am in Christ. He's reminded we're a sweet savor. Now, I jump ahead a little bit there, come back to chapter 1 Corinthians 2, because what you have to see here is what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 2 is he is demonstrate he is setting the the groundwork that your inner man has a has a work of the spirit in it and it ha, that results in a power that will grip that inner man your inner man and it will cause you to be triumphal in everything you just got to get out of the stinking thinking okay you got to get out of the human thinking over here and get over here in the thinking of God's word the sound doctrine now, in chapter 2, he's going to amplify this. He's going to expand the corrective doctrine here concerning this demonstration, his preaching and being a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. A, an expansion here of the methodology of how he's teaching the Corinthians. He says in verse 13, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The demonstration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is via specific words that the Holy Spirit uses to communicate truth today in the dispensation of grace. It is not a feeling. It's not a swoon. It's not a headache. It's not a heartache. It's what? It's words. That's where the Spirit's working, is in the words. The very words that were entrusted to Paul in all of its grand simplicity. Simple language, yet what? Eternally profound. Think about Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isn't that simple? There's nothing, but yet it's what? Eternally profound. It's like, whoa. There's a simple here. So as we start chapter 2, these first four or five verses, there's another layer here. And, and I really, we're going to spend the rest of the morning, I just want you to see, I want you to grasp that while Paul is talking about himself, he's not, you know, bragging He's, 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 what he's doing is he's saying, look, guys, there's something God is doing in and through me that is a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, and that's what is designed to grip you and to cause you to, to move in the right direction. 
this is what is enabling him, Paul, me, Paul, to do what he needs to do to say. How many times would you talk to a group of people who have slammed the door in your face? Maybe one, maybe two, and then you're done, you're moving on. Paul, Paul is there a year and a half. How in the world can you sit in opposition? I know what it's like to, to slave over people, to have them then just leave and go away. And you go, well, why would you do that? Well, because they're people, they need the doctrine, they need the truth. They chose to leave. They chose to go. I didn't choose that. They did. But yet, and that's what Paul, what keeps you going? Paul said, man, there's a demonstration of the work of the Spirit in your inner man that produces a power that when you catch it, you don't stop, regardless of the weakness, the fear, and the trembling. So Paul is highlighting something in verse 3. He's not complaining. He's not moaning. He's not, oh, here we go again. He's not doing it. And we need to understand that, and we need to see it, because the answer is in verse 4. His speech and his preaching wasn't with enticing words. Why? Because it was designed to be the demonstration of the work of the Spirit and the power of that. Now, come over to Acts 18. Just notice some things here. Now, Acts 18, historically, is where the church at Corinth is founded. All right? It's founded in the midst of Paul's provoking ministry to Israel. That's why it's right next door to the, the synagogue, and he gets the two leaders, and he's getting this and that, and people are joining and so forth. And there's mixed reaction to him, isn't there, at Corinth? Some love him, some believe. By the way, you know he's preaching truth because some of the Corinthians do believe him, okay, and get saved. Now they're leaving him for the little trinket over here on the wall, okay? Look at verse 9. By the way, some don't. They hate his guts. They're going to come after him. Look at Acts 18, verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak. Hold not thy peace. Now think about that. Why would the Lord have to show up to Paul and tell Paul not to be afraid? Because what is he? He's afraid. And then tell him to speak. So what's Paul not doing? He ain't speaking. Why? He's afraid. If I keep speaking, they're going to kill me. There's, there, there's fear and trembling here. Verse 10, For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He stayed there for a year and a half, teaching, and but now... Now think about what we just read in verse 9, 10, and 11. This is a very unique and special to only who? Paul. You don't get a vision. You don't get this. This has never happened to you. Well, yeah, it has. No, it hasn't. That's a figment of your imagination of bad baloney the night before. You know how I know? Well, I know because based on the Word of God, okay? This only happened to Paul. Paul, fear is winning against Paul. So the Lord appeared to him. Why did he appear to him, verse 10? To encourage him, to comfort him, to say you're not in this alone. Paul feels alone. 
Every time he turns around to say something to somebody, they're jumping all over him with, ten, with the, ten gal, you know, the ten guns going. And he's like, no, you're good to go, Paul. But you and I, what 1 Corinthians 2, now come back to 1 Corinthians 2, what 1 Corinthians 2 is going to tell you and I is we don't need an Acts 18.9 event. We don't need a vision. Why not? Because Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 2. Da-da! Brain surgery. You're good. It's that simple. See, that's the simplicity of scholarship has a very complicated idea. God says, I don't work in that. I work over here in the simple, the simplicity. Well, it can't be that simple. Yes, it is. You know, when he talks about the simplicity that's in Christ, do you know who makes the simplicity in Christ hard? We do, because it can't be that simple. But it is. See, you know, the hard thing is, is believing it. You know, you read the verses, you study the verses, you look at it. Man, it's really hard to believe them, especially when you come to understand right division. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, okay, I can't claim that verse anymore. What's he doing here? Why does he say 2-3? I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Why does he say that? Because he was. He's that way a year and a half. Now, he's got a special message from God that nothing's going to happen to you from the Lord. But you and I don't have that message. we rather have verse 4. That when we look to Paul, our pattern, and we see his preaching and his teaching, it's in demonstration of what? The Spirit. Guess what? I have the Spirit. You have the Spirit. And he works in my inner man, Ephesians 3.16. And because of that, guess what? I, I've got the power that I can get through, work out, and not allow the fear, the weakness, and the trembling to win the day. Okay? That's the wonderful, that's why he's going to now spend the rest of this chapter talking about how God has chosen to work. How God the Spirit, let's be specific, has chosen to work. He's not going to work in this manner of the wisdom of words, he's over man's wisdom. He's over here working in the simplicity of words. And what Paul's going to do when we get down in verse 6, 7, and 8 is he's going to say, I want to take you guys further into those wisdom of words of the Holy Spirit power and demonstration, but you're not able because all I can know unto you is the milk things of Calvary because you're not mature enough to handle the, the hidden wisdom of the full the full boat of the hidden wisdom of God. But yet, how did the Spirit decide? How is God working today? He's working through the Word, as you put it in your inner man, energizes that. That then works out of you. That's why reading three chapters, just reading, okay, is so critical. Just get it in there. In other words, if you if we are Allowing the opposition, the weak, the fear, the trembling, to terrify us, we're going to fail, and we're going to fall apart. And what Paul's describing for us is that that work of the Spirit is what will get us through the weakness, fear, and trembling. We don't need a vision. We need chapter 2, verse 3, 4, and 5. That's what we need, and that's Paul's goal here. Now, verse 4. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He, again, he's describing 
why he was able to do what he was doing. For a year and a half, he's working at Corinth, and every time he turns around, there's opposition. He was afraid. He had fear and trembling and weakness. And what he's doing there is a demonst- he's demonstrating something that God the Spirit was doing, was equipping Paul and subsequently those at the Corinth and then obviously you and I today. He's equipping us. And we need to understand it. We need to grasp that there is an answer to the weakness, fear, and trembling. There's an answer to the fleshly emotion, whatever that emotion is, there's an answer to it, and the answer of it is in the words, the doctrine. And the methodology that God the Spirit uses is He's using words, not a bunch of show-and-go stuff. Words. And again, when we think about what the Spirit's using, He's using words that's designed to produce some power in your inner man that will compel you, that will encourage you, that will drive you, that will strengthen you, that will comfort you to do what needs to be done in your life in the moment with the doctrine. And when we do that in the midst of all of the adversities of life, let's just broaden that bad boy out, get off the big three here. It can only be done by the work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit working in the Word in our lives, in our inner man. Come over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Again, Paul is describing how the Spirit is, 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 how his speech and his preaching is demonstrating In his ministry, the working and the power of the Spirit in the midst of the believers there. Because what's going to happen when the Corinthians tell the Epicureans and the Stoics to go away? They're just going to pack up and go and leave them high and dry. And Paul says, I love you. I care about you. I want you to be able to stand. Verse 5, I want you to be able to have a standing here. And the only way to do that is is the methodology that God, the Holy Spirit, is using to communicate wisdom and truth. 1 Thessalonians 1, if you look at verse 5, just think about this here. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. By the way, notice our gospel, power, Holy Ghost, assurance. Simple words. Ye became, again, notice how he conducted his ministry at Thessalonica. He says, you guys know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Verse 6, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word... Notice he doesn't say, received us, put us up at the Hyatt, took care of all of our meals and all that. You know, you took care of us. No, you received the word in much what? Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that interesting? Here they are. Paul, 
what he's talking, you guys, we came in, we preached the gospel. By the way, which gospel? Well, if they became followers of us, that's Paul's my gospel, not the kingdom gospel. So he comes in, he describes how the gospel came to him. How did it come to him? In much affliction. You go back and you read in, in Acts 18 and you read in Acts 17, you read in Acts 18, all the turmoil that's going on there. But it came in much affliction and in power and in the work of the Holy Ghost. They believed the message and because it was going to cost them something. Think about affliction. Think about this. If I sent out an email to everybody that said, okay, tomorrow at church it's going to cost you to come to church. It's going to cost you to, you know, it's going to cost you $10 to come to church, $100, $1,000. What's people going to do? They're not going to come to church because it costs, and that's the problem. The Thessalonians came regardless of the cost. The Corinthians were like, nah, we'll get him next week. See the difference? The Thessalonians, they received the gospel, in uh, verse 5, in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. You see, they came to church regardless of the cost. Now, that is completely opposite of how you market church. Come to our church. It's going to cost you your friends and your family. Come to our church. It's going to cost you. How do you like that? You know, some of you guys have dealt with family over the issues of dispensational Bible study, and it has cost you. Right? I look around the room, yeah? It cost to preach and teach and to believe what we believe, what Paul preached, teach, what we believe, preach. It cost. So how you doing with that? <laughs> you know, see, it, look, look down at... Uh, at uh, chapter, look over at chapter two, verse fourteen. First, First Thessalonians two, fourteen. For ye, brethren, became followers of the church, uh, churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. How did they become followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ? For ye also suffered, have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. You see, they became followers of the churches of Judea, and, and, and which are in Christ, in what form? Suffering at the hands of their own country. Suffering. That's why, that's why the verse says, for ye also have suffered. You see, they didn't follow, come out following Christ because they're all preaching the same message. They come in there because what's happening at Thessalonica, the Jewish church over there, right down the road from them, was suffering the same thing. Again, you suffered for believing the truth. Verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You see, what they persecuting Paul? Think about this. The wisdom of God is not promoted or acknowledged in the 
realm of the methodology of mastery of oration. The wisdom of God is, is pursued, it's, it's proclaimed in a message that motivates people to be willing to die for it, to lose it all. If you preach that message, what's going to happen to you? You're going to suffer. The Thessalonians said, give us another plate. Let's go. Let's keep going. The Corinthians were like, no, we want to come over here and have a great big buffet at the Hyatt and listen to some smooth jazz, smooth jazz <laughs> some smooth talkers. See? Come back to 2 Corinthians 2. I, I, well, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 1 there. I've got to pick up something in verse 6. You see, Paul, the wisdom of God is in a message that motivates people to be willing to die for it, to lose everything for it. And you know what Paul did? Remember he said, I was above the Jews' religion, above mine equal. Then he said, what in Philippians? I count all that, but waste, dung, that I may what? Win Christ and know Christ. I had it. Think about that. He was... He was second in command in the Jewish religious system underneath the chief priest. He was in charge. He was the boss of the heavy hitter society. He was, he was the boss of the goon society. Go get him. And he goes, you know what? I count all that but loss. Why? That I may know him and win him and have him and have his righteousness be my righteousness. You see, the Corinthians, they believe Paul. They're getting saved. But yet they weren't pursuing the wisdom of God in the manner that God had laid it out to be pursued. They're doing it over here in human wisdom and the fluff and the softness of life rather down in the trenches of who you are in Christ. Verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Now watch, with joy of the Holy Ghost. Is it possible to suffer with joy? Is it possible to be afraid, to be fearful, to be trembling with joy? Yes. That's what verse 6 is telling you. Even though you're in the moment of the adversary, the, the, the opposition, you can have joy in that moment. And that's the demonstration of the power and the working of God the Spirit in your inner man. And that's what Paul's getting at when you come back, into, in, in, come back to 2 Corinthians 2. There's something bigger going on here than just your ease of life. The, big, the best thing you can... I, I, the most thrilling moment... In, in your life, in my life, I'll just talk about me because it's happened to me, and I don't know if this has happened to you, is to walk into battle, spiritual battle, and win, but on the outside look like you lost. That's what Paul's getting at. The world says, loser, 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 foolishness, foolish, and yet God says what? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. The world says, how in the world can you meet? Yeah, that's a verse. I'll find the verse for you, okay? <laughs> yeah, the flesh pots of Egypt. There you go. Get, throw, the, throw the chicken out with, yeah, anyway. 2 Corinthians 2. 
You see, there's something deeper going on here in 1 Corinthians 2 than him just saying, I came in you with weakness and fear and trembling. And that my speech was not enticing words. By the way, most people stop at that verse 4 after my speech and my preaching were without enticing words. They just stop. They, then they go right to verse 5. They never really finish verse 4. And verse 4 is the answer. The dem- you, when you guys see me, what you're seeing me, I know the world says I look weak and I look foolish and I'm the off scurring and I'm a loser. But man, when you see that that is really the demonstration of the spirit and of power, you would never look at me that way ever again. And the Corinthians are missing it. Now, look at 2 Corinthians 2.14. We read this a minute ago. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph. Again, where? In Christ. Okay. And maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, watch him describe his ministry. And he's going to describe it as a sweet savor. Verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Now, verse 15, you better be careful with. Because what you usually said is, see, the saved people say the sweet smell, it's good. And the lost people talk about it, the smell being rot. But that's not what verse 15 is talking about. Verse 15 is telling us how God smells. And how God, look at verse 15. For we are unto who? To God, a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that are perished. You see, God, how does God smell? In, in response to the believer, sweet savor in Christ. And a, to the lost, a sweet savor of Christ. In God's mind, in God's thinking, success or failure, saved or lost, doesn't matter. It all smells sweet in Christ. Follow that? For unto God, for we are unto God. Now, verse 16, to the one, we are the Savior of death unto death, and to the other, Savior of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. Now, here's how the world smells. Here's how the believer smells, verse 16. Verse 15 is how God thinks and God smells. Here's, so when the world looks at you and I, what do they smell? Rot, death, decay, foolishness. But God smells what? The believer smells what? Life. Do you see the difference? I hope you do. It's always a boogaboo for me when I hear guys go down through here and they, well, you know, know, and they don't read the verse. In God's mind, Success or failure, everything smells sweet in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is a demonstration of a life of sacrifice, of selflessness, of the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word working. Now the world comes in, and what the world smells is death. They smell the foolish message of trusting a dead Jew. How can that help you today? That was over 2,000 years ago. And then Paul says, you know, but to the believer, you know what we smell? We smell life unto life. And then he asks the greatest question ever asked outside of how do I get saved? 
And who is sufficient for these things? Wow, what a question. Paul didn't enjoy the response of the opposition to the gospel. So how can you keep going? How can you keep moving? How can you one step in front of the other? How can you just keep doing ministry? How can you preach a message that ends up in a, in a physical attacks and, and, and opposition and rejection? How can you? The question, who is sufficient for these things? Answer, chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know what the, Paul said to the Corinthians? After, I was there a year and a half, and I suffered the opposition. I was ready to quit, yet I, I couldn't. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Again, I was frustrated with you. I was, every time you, I turned around, just on and on and on with yous. But I wasn't motivated by a paycheck. I wasn't motivated by the, the attaboys and the glad speak. I was motivated by the, by the, by the Spirit working in my inner man where the real power is. And this is in the face of chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You see, they're beginning to question who he is, his authority, his apostleship. By the way, he says, ye are our apostles written, I'm sorry, our epistles written in our hearts known and read of all men. See, they're going to begin, when we get into 2 Corinthians, you, you'll see the heartbreak of Paul here. Because they're, they're not following him. They're trying to push him over in the corner. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. You see, Paul, they're questioning Paul and his authority, his message. So they're really going after they're really going after the way that God is, is establishing the very mechanisms, the very methodology of how they're going to know him and value him and value what he's doing today in the age of grace. And they're doing it by going after the methodology of the world, human wisdom. And Paul sits there and says, I'm legitimate, guys. And because I am only doing all that I, I'm doing here by the, by the demonstration of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and all that, and you know what? You don't love me. You're after me. Ch uh, chapter 10, verse number 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Base. Why in the world would he say that? Because they've, they've run him into the ground. They, they're sitting there, verse 2. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with, the, with the, that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as we walked according to the flesh. You know what they're looking at? They're looking at Paul's outward appearance. 
When he says a walking according to the flesh, they're looking at his outward appearance. That's why verse uh, verse 7, do ye think on things after the outward appearance? What's happening here? They're not focusing in on the inner man and what's going on in the inner man. They're over here in the world's wisdom looking at the feel-good stuff. And Paul's like, I came here. I loved you guys. I'm going to love you when you don't love me. Look at verse 10. For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily present is weak and his speech contemptible. Man, could you imagine saying that about the Apostle Paul? They did. He was right in their midst. And he says, regardless of all of that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to continue and I'm going to keep. Come over to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 6. But though I be rude in speech, and again, rude here, not crude, rudimentary, yet not in knowledge, but we have been uh, thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Simple speech. Verse 18, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. For ye suffer. If a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face, all the things that they were allowing to be done to them to maintain the status quo of, well, we raised $100,000 and we had five great speakers all week and we had a revival week and all that, and you just on and on and on and on. There's a church up in Mesa, North Mesa, a big mega church, they always have guest speakers coming in, Living Word or something like that. I don't remember now the name of it. And I was talking to one of the guys there, one of the elk deacons, and, cause I, and I was on my school bus, and I pulled in the parking lot to turn around, which apparently I wasn't supposed to do, but I did anyway. And he met me at the gate. To, you know, and Well, the gate was open, but he, anyway, he showed up out of nowhere, came out of one of the tunnels or something, I'm sure, who knows. <laughs> You know, you know, they all have tunnels underneath them now, you know. So he popped up, and so I was talking to him. I said, well, hey, and he had a whole list, big names, Joyce Meyer, uh, T.D. Jakes. Um, oh, what's, there was another guy. He didn't, they couldn't get Olstein. He was busy, the guy told him. And I said, really? How? And he goes, They're, they were $25,000 a piece for one sermon, for one message. And he goes, I go, wow, you guys, I see these up here. And he had a bunch of other names, big guys out of Texas and California. Uh, Rick Warren, that's, he had Rick. And he goes, yeah, he goes, we do this every quarter. Now think about five guys, $25,000 a person, and they do it four times a year. And then they pay their preacher his big nut. What do you think they're doing to the people? What happens by the way, it was there a time when the megachurches, when for one coming in the front door, four were going out the back door. They never told you that we're always losing. Okay? But the thing is, my point is, is that's what the Corinthians were doing. Look, we have this, we have these, we have all this going on. And Paul says, you're letting those guys devour you. You're letting them put you under bondage, religious bondage. They're using religious speak. I'm, using, I'm not doing that with you. You let them devour you. Eat them up. Remember that stuff in Matthew when the priests come into the widow's house and they devour her house? You know, the old thing, high, ma- high pay, high mass, low pay, low mass, no pay, no mass. That's what, boom, religion. You're letting them 
The Corinthians are falling for the mastery of oration. Paul's just using simple speech, no bondage. By the way, they're smiting them on the face. Physical abuse. Coming down here and, man, turn the other cheek. Whack. Little, physically. The Corinthians are allowing themselves to be taken advantage of. And you know what Paul says? Chapter 12, verse 14. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought to not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. That's his attitude. Where did that attitude come from? Demonstration of the Spirit and of the power and the working in that inner man. He says, I have a love that drives me to sacrifice everything for you. He tells them, I rob churches to do you service. I have a love that, allow, that drives me to sacrifice everything for you, even when you don't love me back. A demonstration of the Spirit. That inner man attitude of loving you regardless of your response of less loving me. Come over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 16. Paul, praying here, says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. And there it is. Where are we strengthened? In the inner man, by the working of the Holy Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit work? That's what he's going to develop in 1 Corinthians 2. For the very first time, we learn, by the way, 1 Corinthians 2, that the Spirit's working in the words. He's not working in the manner he worked in the Acts ministry. That's over. He ain't working that way. He's working now in the words. Come over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Here quickly. Verse 11. Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Wow, glorious power, might, strengthen. When you're in weakness and fear and trembling, you need to do it with patience and longsuffering and joy. Paul never, come back to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul never gave up. He looked at those Corinthians and he said, the, the less I be loved, the more I love you. You couldn't get rid of me if, even if you tried, and they were trying pretty hard. And when the, Paul, when the Corinthians gave up on Paul, he doesn't give up on them. So in verse 4, 3 and 4, Paul is communicating something here much deeper in demonstration of spirit and of power. You Corinthians don't appreciate the high price I'm paying to come and to do you ministry, to, do, to, to work with you, to do the ministry in your midst. And the reason that I am here and the reason I am willing to pay the price isn't because I'm such a wonderful guy. Because when I look at you, I don't like you. But it's be because of the inner man working, of the Holy Spirit in the inner man that strengthens him with might, 
glorious power in the realm of his inner man. And that is what enables me to move forward. The Corinthians, weren't, they didn't get it. They needed to fix their thinking. They needed to look and say, okay, what is pressing Paul to sacrifice everything? They didn't. Not all of them, but the ones that are in the, tr the troublemakers, you see. What's pressing Paul to have this level of sacrifice and love for us? What's motivating Paul to do this? By the way, you, we can have it too. <laughs> Paul's demonstrating the working of the Holy Spirit and the power in his inner man. It's on full display when he loved them. And what did he love them with? The truth. Even when they hated him. Again, Paul, it hurts. I'm not, reject, I'm not dismissing the hurt. But in the inner man, there's something going on that compels me to keep preaching at all costs. The Corinthians never truly, by the way, they never truly recognized that deep love that Paul had for them. Even in 2 Corinthians, just as you think they're turning the page, they're going to go and beat on him again. And yet Paul sits there and he says, you know what? I'm doing this not because I, not because I and me love you because I really don't like you because you're mean to me. I love you because of who you are in Christ. And that demonstration of the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit working in my inner man. Now, by the way, we have, because it's time to quit, we have the same spirit. We, can, we have the same power that Paul had. We can do the very same thing because the spirit works where? In your inner man. And that's where Paul is now going to spend the rest of the chapter educating the Corinthians on, you and I on, on how that Holy Spirit strengthens that inner man. And guess what he's going to use? Specific words entrusted to the Apostle Paul in a book that he wrote. <laughs> and, and, and off he's going to go. Not in all the hoodly-doo mess of religion, but over here in the simplistic language of words on a page in a book. Okay? By the way, verse 5 that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the goal. And the wonderful thing is, is we can do all this ourselves too. We, don't, we can be like Paul. Now you can be like the Corinthians, and then I'll smack you around like Paul does, okay? But don't. Be like Paul. Okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions here, that as we look at them and consider them and see what the Apostle Paul's doing and dealing with the Corinthians, that we can just take to heart to, guard, to examine ourselves and make sure that we, too, are enjoying that demonstration of the Spirit and of power in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.